Lit Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome to The Profile with me, Justin Briley. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Skip Heitzig on the programme today, Senior Pastor of Calvary Church in New Mexico. Uh, we'll find out more about Skip in a moment's time and his new book, Biography of God. But just a reminder that if you'd like more from Premier Christianity magazine, and The Profile is brought to you in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine every week, uh, then do go online and ask for a free sample copy of the latest edition. That's at premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Uh, as I mentioned, Skip Heitzig, my guest today, uh, we're going to be finding out about Skip's life, um, how he became a pastor of a very large church, actually, what that's looked like in the last year in lockdown, but also this new book, Biography of God, um, which asks, does God exist? <clears throat> and if he does, is it possible to know him? Skip, welcome along to the program. Thank you. It's great to be with you from one continent to another. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're you're uh, based in New Mexico, that I understand. Right, right, right. That's the Rocky Mountains, southwestern part of the United States. It's very high in altitude. I would say if Denver, Colorado and Phoenix, Arizona had a baby, it would look like Albuquerque. <laughs> OK, um, you, you originally come, though, I think, from SoCal, though, don't you? Southern California. Right. Orange County of Southern California in the Jesus movement with a pastor by the name of Chuck Smith. So I had my roots in that surf culture of Huntington Beach and that area. Yeah, I mean, I, I know a little of the the Jesus movement um, from the 60s and 70s. Um, I've been out to the mothership, as it were, where it all began with Chuck Smith, um, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Um, but you you found your faith in that sort of environment. Did you tell us a bit about that? I didn't find my faith there, though I heard about the church. But um, I was I was up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it's 1973. I'm flipping through the channels. And uh, a, a speaker came on that my dad told me that I should listen to, even though I was Roman Catholic. Uh, my dad said, if you ever see Billy Graham, you should listen to Billy Graham. He has great things to say. He has a great way of presenting it. So it was one afternoon I was alone and I turned on the TV and Billy Graham was preaching one of his crusades. And I just thought I'll spend the afternoon drinking a beer and watching Billy Graham. And that 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 consumed that afternoon. And by the end of the broadcast, I was convicted. I was moved and I knew I had to make a choice. So I made a choice to receive Christ by watching a televised broadcast of an event. And that's, that's what began it all. Then I moved down back south to uh, Orange County, California, got involved with Calvary Chapel. And that's where I grew. My roots got deeper. Uh, interesting. What what would you say your life looked like before you had that moment of turning to God? I was a Californian and I was a Californian of the 60s and 70s. So I was very experimental. I would try anything anybody kind of had to offer me in terms of an experience, whether it was a drug or it was astral projection, which I did and spirit writing, which I did and auto hypnosis, which I did. I just experimented with things to find what is reality? Um, and I was just one big open book. And, um, you know, by that time, you know, I was doing drugs when I was in mid school, high school, um, before high school, you know, and so, so I wasn't afraid to sort of step in and see where that road took me. And in one sense, that was good, because it made me a little bit more fair minded toward 
gospel presentations, but uh, I, I was I was I was led astray before that on a number of ideas. So uh, I was just very experimental and open-minded. Mm. So I guess at the point where you, you decided to to tune in and spend the afternoon watching a Graham, Billy Graham broadcast, I, I don't know. Did did that just feel like hey, this is just one more option? What was it though that actually broke through and made you realize no, this is this is different to all the other things I've experimented with? It's because the way he spoke about God. I grew up in a, a Christian environment, a, a church environment, uh, um, and so I, I had a faith in God, and then I moved away from that, like kids do when they grow up, and I left that, and yet he's speaking about God, but not the way I had heard a priest speak about God, not the way the Catholic Church presented. It was very relational, very personal, and very confident. This man would would uh, speak with such conviction and uh, it drew, it just, I just thought, okay, I'll listen to more. I'll listen to more. And mm-hmm. by the end of it, I, I, this is what I thought by the end of the broadcast, I said to myself, if I was in that stadium, I would get up like those people are doing and walk out on the field and I would pray that prayer. And then I had a thought, I said, boy, it's a good thing. I'm not at that stadium that I'm behind a television. So I guess I'm safe. You know, that's I, I'm fighting this. So I thought I'm mm. safe. And as soon as I thought that, Billy Graham turned to the TV camera and he looked right at me and said, if you're watching about television, you can know Christ. And I went, whoa, it just sort of spooked me like he wow. read my thoughts. And uh, and I prayed that prayer right there as he prayed it on the television. And by the way, that was a really good Billy Graham impression. <laughs> uh that, that that was I, I was transported to, to Billy Graham at that moment. Um, I mean, you've actually continued in later in life, obviously, working with the Billy Graham organization, haven't you? Do you want to tell us a bit about that? I did. I had the privilege of meeting him because his son, Franklin Graham, who runs a great organization called Samaritan's Purse, which alleviates needs, uh, physical problems, ailments. He's always responding to floods and earthquakes and fires around the world. Um, and, and so I, I had a mission bent by that time. And I met Franklin uh, many, many years ago and started getting involved in some of his projects. And then he invited me back to his home and invited me to, to meet his family and have dinner a few times at their home. And I got to spend some pretty good time with Dr. Graham. And uh, it, he always amazed me with his humility. Mm. Um, it, it wasn't a fake humility. It was a genuine um, thankfulness and wonder that the God of the universe loved him and and would use him. And I it made such an imprint because he, you know, he was already a legend at that time when I met him. And when he would say those things like, Well, I don't know if anyone will come tonight to hear me. And it's like, <laughs> you gotta be kidding. I mean, by <laughs> this time you know that people come to hear you speak. But but it really was a genuine self-effacement right it it was a genuine humility not a false humility there there was a sense that he didn't he didn't take it for granted at all every yeah yeah an extraordinary extraordinary individual extraordinary individual um uh, and by the way uh this very program the profile we've we've spoken um with his son as well franklin so so if folk are listening and want to, to to listen back in the archive do check that out as well we've got interviews with franklin graham on file um, but returning to your sort of your own journey as it went on from that point of, of conversion, um, you moved back down to SoCal. You got involved in the Calvary Chapel Network there, 
obviously um under chuck smith and um, what it must have been quite heady days you were seeing all these you know surfers and hippies coming to christ what what was the feeling in 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 that time um the first feeling that i had going into calvary chapel i'll just speak to that real quick is that i was home it's like i came in i go i'm home and i thought they they create they built this or they built this for me <laughs> you know because it was a tent at the time it wasn't even a building um, the building was being built, but it was a tent and they rolled out green carpet on top of the tent so you could walk instead of walking on the dirt. So it was very casual. And I sat on the floor all the time. I, I hardly ever took a chair. Um, I, I, I came, come in in my swimsuit and my flip flops and a T-shirt after a, a surf session. And I found that there were a number of people that looked like me and were casual like me and accepted me and even the people that didn't look like me accepted me. So I, I just felt like, yep, this is the place. You know, socially, this was a very magnetic environment. But yeah. then spiritually, it was a very enriching environment because uh, Chuck Smith taught from Genesis to Revelation, verse by verse, and I'd never heard anybody um, um, do that. I, I didn't even hear him pick up a Bible and expound much on it, let alone tackle all the difficult passages of Scripture. So it was quite unique. Mm. Yeah. I, and did you find yourself within yourself a, a calling, I suppose, being birthed that this might be for you as well, the ministry? Well, not at first. Um, at, I was drawn to it and I loved what I saw, but it's not like I want to do that. I, was, I went to college uh, for medical reasons to, in radiology. So I studied, um, uh, I studied radiology. I, I became um, a tech, technologist for uh, nuclear medicine and in uh, uh, tomography. Um, and, and so that, that was what I did. And uh, the reason I did that is my pastor, Chuck Smith, said, you should get a career. You should, you should learn a trade, and then you can take that anywhere you want to go, and you can do ministry with that. You can start a church. You can start a Bible study. You can start a rock band, whatever. But you, have, you, don't, have to, you don't have to depend on people to support you. You can support yourself. So I thought, that's a good idea. So I did that, but I was a musician at that time, and I was playing in different bands, Maranatha bands, they were called, and, and we just used that to promote the gospel. So I sort of felt a calling to music. I didn't know that it would be ministry, but I was, again, drawn to Chuck's style of, of, of pulpit ministry, and in particular, I loved the exposition of Scripture, the fact that somebody would take a text and unpack and unfold and go down to the depths of the meaning of the original um, um, uh, context and language and background fascinated me. Mm. So, so as time went on, I thought, I'd love to try that. Mm. So eventually, of course, you, you met your wife, Lenya, and um, family, I'm sure, followed. Um, what, when did the, the sort of seed of possibly beginning a ministry and potentially moving on from your, your job in radiology and so on? start? I, I had uh, um, an opportunity that was afforded me by Chuck Smith's brother named Paul Smith. He's maybe a couple years younger than Chuck. And he had started a, a Bible study that was growing into a church in another area of Southern California. And he invited me on a Sunday night to fill in for him because he said he would be out of town. Would you fill in for me and, and do a, a, my Sunday night service. Well, I got very nervous, but I was very excited. So I studied and prepared, and I taught Jonah chapter one. That's what I remember. That was my text the, that night. 
And as I was teaching for him, and I was very, very nervous while I was doing it, um, to make things worse, about halfway through my study, I see through the back door of the church, Paul Smith coming in, sitting down and listening to the rest of my sermon. So um, I thought, well, I thought he was out of town. I don't know why he's here. But he came up to me afterwards and he said, listen, I was out of town and I got out in time to hear you finish that. And I think that you would do a disservice to this church if you were to stop in Jonah chapter one, would you mind coming back next week and doing Jonah chapter two and three, et cetera? So he was my encourager. He kind of pushed me into that. He knew that I had a desire to at least experiment with it, to try this out, to see if it fit. And uh, he, he, he was very encouraging to, to give me opportunity. Mm. And that's how it all began, really. For yeah, me. yeah. As I understand it, you know, what started off as a Bible study eventually grew into uh, a church plant um, in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So so those must have been, um, you know, exciting, but I'm sure nerve wracking days. Uh, that, that's no small thing to, to begin uh, a church. What, what were some of the big challenges you faced? What were some of the encouragements you had on that journey? The biggest, um, the biggest challenge that I faced was being in a brand new place that I had never been before, Albuquerque, with a brand new life mate, a person that I barely knew, my wife, and doing something I had no experience doing, starting a church. So all of those together is like a, the perfect storm. Not, not that it was, it was difficult, but it, but it was exciting. Uh, so... I really didn't know what I was doing. So I started a Bible study. I'm starting this marriage. I don't know any friends. And I spent a few months there. And, um, you know, there are seasons in Albuquerque. And I wasn't used to seasons. I wasn't used (laughs) to fall and winter and frost and things like that. So um, I'm a wimpy little Southern California kid with orange juice in his blood veins. So (laughs) I I thought, I can't handle this. I got to go back. And... um, I remember um, when I, I, I went home, I went back to Southern California for Christmas that first year. The flowers were out. It was 75 degrees. It was warm and sunny. And I just said to Lenya, I said to her, I don't have much experience in church ministry. Maybe it would be better if I came back to an environment I know under somebody's wing. And maybe if they gave me a job as, a, as an assistant pastor, I could learn the ropes a little bit and then try this again. Okay, so I think that was probably an excuse for me just to go home. And so she said, listen, I'm following you. You make the decisions, whatever you decide. So I decided we're moving back home. And I'm driving back to Albuquerque to pack my bags and pack my stuff and go back home to Southern California. I had forgotten about a promise I told the Lord when I moved to Albuquerque. And that is... I'll give you six months, Lord, I'm going to be here six months and I'm going to plow the ground. I'm going to, I'm going to try this out and I'm going to, I'm going to be a fisher of men for six months. If I don't catch any fish after six months, I'm not stupid. I'll go to a different fishing hole. You know, I, I, I want to see fruit. Well, I'd only been there a few months. And when I was driving back into Albuquerque and I'm thinking, okay, I got to pack this. I got to pack that. I got to do this. The Lord spoke to my heart. The Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, you owe me six months. You promised six months. That's not up yet. So I, I remember turning to Lenya saying, you know, Lenya, I think the Lord spoke to me. And, and I did tell the Lord that I would do it for six months. And it's only a few months into this. 
I need to stay a little bit longer. And she said, okay, then we'll stay a little bit longer. Within that time, within just a few months, that's when things began to mushroom and grow. But the Lord was just taking me through my paces and had to do some work in me. Uh, and, and then he would work through me. Very interesting. Well, fast forward, you know, a couple of decades and obviously the church grew. Um, I think it was in the early 80s that you began the church. Um, now several thousand in attendance. Um, what I mean, obviously, you there was something about the DNA of what you brought with you to that church that was attractive, um, much in the same way that Chuck Smith's ministry was so attractive and has sparked so many others to go and establish their own works elsewhere. What, what, what would you say is the sort of the DNA of, of Calvary church uh, as you passed it over the decades? Um, it's it, believe it or not, it's not as easy a question as, as you might expect, because I, I don't want to presume on what the Lord did mm. or how he worked or, or, or what he used, but I'll say that it was unique um, it was a unique experience to people of this region. Hmm. Um, they were, it was, the churches around here had been traditional. They didn't have a Jesus movement like I had. And so to see um, uh, a very relaxed atmosphere that was kind of musically centric, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, bibliocentric, but at the hmm. same time, balanced out with a contemporary with a seriousness um, a, a freshness, a, a fun about gathering. I think all of that was was attractive to people. Mm. Um, I think the main thing I heard was that people said they had never really had uh, looked at the Bible like that. They hadn't learned so much as they had learned coming to our Bible mm. studies. So, so that showed me that 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 people do hunger to know what God's word is all about so i think it was tapping into an unfed hunger for a freshness uh, an authenticity and something that didn't just appeal to the emotions but the mind they wanted to reason through it come let us reason together so um, i've always thought that the gospel should be presented uh, mentally and and uh, Mm. reasonably yeah and um uh so I think a combination of those factors. And obviously, yeah, and, and I fully appreciate what you say there. It's, you can't, it's not just about techniques. God's grace is at work in, in everything we do. Um, I mean, the other, the other thing, obviously, uh, I've interviewed a number of mega church pastors, to use the, the label, over the years. And what, what frequently comes out is there's always there's a difference between drawing a crowd, which is one thing, and making disciples and uh and how how have you sort of navigated that because obviously it's it's wonderful to create a a kind of place where people want to come how do you disciple people though on that kind of large gathering level um i I do it through a number of gifted individuals on my staff great assistant pastors uh, some who are just devoted to taking a person from the nascent stages of their belief into depth of service and equipping and and we've we've done a really good job in honing how that looks and how that works identifying gifts helping people identify those gifts and and how to operate in them um, um, so so i i would i would say that uh, not only that it i i often have my eye open for people 
and it's going to sound a little goofy, but they have a fire in their eye. You know, it's sort of like in the movie Rocky, you know, where it's got, he's got the tiger eye, you know, he's got he has that look about him. Like this guy can fight, you know? And so when I, when I talk to young men or, or women who have that craving, that desire, it's deeper than most people have. I want to grab a hold of them and take that and, and infuse as much uh, equipping and opportunity as I possibly can. And I've seen that pay off. I've seen these people become leaders of their own ministries over the years. So uh, I think God has given me a gift sort of as a talent scout to be able to see that <laughs> and encourage people saying, hey, you could do more. Why don't you join my staff? So mm. we had a kid. I mean, he was just a kid and uh, just getting out of high school, but he had a way with other kids in making Jesus attractive and discipling them, but he lacked really the capacity to take him further. So I remember I took this high school kid and he said he wanted to do ministry. And I said, I'll make you an interim pastor or an intern pastor on my staff. And I'll show you the ropes if you want to. Well, today he's in Australia and he's starting his own work. And I love seeing those kinds of things um, Mm. come, but I'll, I'll tell you this in the pandemic, the pandemic has awakened me and us to the need for the personal touch and personal discipleship. So mm-hmm. with, with a large church of, of thousands of people, um, you don't always have the time to be as close and personal as you'd like. And, and so you have staff and you have lay people that you train for that. But during the pandemic, everything sh- shut down, everything changed. And because it shut down, people's jobs on staff uh, became inconsequential. So I have a pretty large staff. And what a lot of people here in the States are doing is, is furloughing people up, uh, uh, you know, letting them go until mm. there's an opportunity to hire them back. So I did not do that. And I did not have to do that financially. So what we did is people who worked in the bookstore or the coffee shop or in this ministry, that ministry, we said, let's, let's just take the roster of all the people in our church, all 15,000 names, let's call them personally, every single one, including myself, I'll do that too. So they gave me a list just like they gave everybody else. And we just started calling individuals to see if we could bring them food or, or, or anything from the store, how we could pray for them. We'd encourage them. And it was all one-on-one ministry. Mm. And it felt so good to get back to that again, yeah. that we, we thought, okay, now going forward, after the pandemic is done, this is one of those best practices that we can't let go of again. Not that we let go of it, but we let it get away from us. Put it sure. that way. Yeah. And, uh, it, it just made ministry more attractive. Well, that, that's encouraging to hear because I was going to come on anyway to how obviously the, the church has fared during this pandemic and the lockdown and so on. Um, obviously, I, I'm assuming that you had a period where you could not broadcast from the church for, for some time, um, uh, certainly not with the congregation. Ha- has has that been relaxed? I know it, it varies depending on which part of the USA you're in, but, but are you able to gather people again at, at this time? Yeah, it's a funny thing in our state. We It relaxed and we were ready. We were allowed to open. To, at a small percentage and then a larger percentage and it kept growing and growing every week and it was exciting and better and better and then it shut down again and our governor um uh is trying her best but she shut the whole state again and she called me personally and said would you be willing to suspend services just for two weeks and we're going to kind of do a reset and i said okay i'll do it for two weeks so we did it for two weeks and then we reopened mm-hmm. and so it's it's 
the first night we had a service, it seemed like it was even more intense and more people were more grateful yeah. so, because it's like we were recovering. And then it's like walking up to the patient who just got over the flu and then sucker punching him in the gut, you know, and it's like, yeah. oh, I didn't see that one coming. Yeah. And, and, and so people are really excited to look at other people and give them the love of Jesus and encouragement. And we can't hug right now or, yeah. or handshake, but, but um, we, we are opening. It is yeah. slower. People yeah. are nervous. We understand that we're taking all the precautions, but there is a palpable joy in getting to do anything. Yeah. Well, it, you, you realize how much you miss it, don't you? When it's taken away and, and how much we take for granted, just the, being able to gather and, and be, be in fellowship together. Um, just before we go to our first break, um, obviously, you know, we over here in the UK, we've been seeing different responses to, to, to this from different church leaders. Uh, there have been some tension, certainly with some large churches seeking to remain open. Um, John MacArthur's church in, in California, others who, who have felt that the, their local governments or whatever have overstepped the mark. Um, I mean, what's your feeling? Where, where, how do you, you navigate the balance between obviously wanting to do your part as a citizen in terms of the health measures, but also obviously balancing that against um, people's spiritual needs and whether the, the, the health issues are as, as drastic as, as, as are sometimes claimed in the, in the media. Uh, it's delicate. It's, it takes a lot of mental and emotional energy to navigate this. Um, I've never had a period of ministry where every single day you have to reassess and communicate and figure out a strategy and read through health regulations. And it just takes an enormous amount of energy. Then you have people on one side saying you should open no matter what the government says. Others say you should stay closed until Jesus comes back. <laughs> and, and so it's like, there's just, there's no way to do it without getting flack. Yeah. So we, we have been in compliance with the government, but we're ready to not comply if we need to. Um, I've told people we're going to open and we did open and, and, and I announced that we were going to open, but it's, it's because the governor said you got two weeks and two mm. weeks will we'll open up again. But I knew that she would even pull back from that. And she has, so she's let us open, but I announced that we were going to open and stay open. And we have proven that you can, you can operate safely, responsibly, that people are adults, that people make their own choices every day, that life itself is not safe. And, uh, and, and so um, let's protect the people that need protecting, but let's move on with our lives. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, um, it's, it's worked out. Now, I'll say this. I've had COVID-19. I've gone through it. So I know what it feels like. My wife had it. My son had it. And we didn't get it at church. We got it from uh, another uh, occasion. But uh, nonetheless, we've had it. So I know what it feels like. I know it's real. And I know it's different for everybody. But for me, it certainly wasn't as bad as a lot of the flu episodes that I've had in my lifetime. So it's like, I, I had it, I got over and I thought that really wasn't that bad. <laughs> I guess it, it will depend on the individual um, uh, to, to a great degree. And, and it's always a, a difficult thing I can imagine balancing the, uh, yeah, the, the different concerns on different sides. Not a job that I would want myself, but I'm glad glad that you're finding a way to get through it, Skip. We're going to go to a quick break. 
and we'll be back to talk about your new book biography of god because you've been busy during this lockdown you've produced <laughs> yes, a book sir. so uh, i want to talk about that uh, the title especially and um and we'll be back in a moment's time you are listening to the profile here on premier christian radio also available on podcast of course if you go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile you can listen back to many more episodes of the show and all brought to you in partnership with premier christianity magazine do you want to stay informed on the best of what's happening in the uk church today premier christianity magazine is for you the uk's leading christian magazine is published every month and features interviews with christian leaders in-depth reporting reviews columnists and loads more and best of all you can try it for free Head to our website now to request the latest edition worth £5.95, completely free of charge. Visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to this week's edition of the show. It's Justin Briley with you for The Profile today and in conversation with Skip Heitzig. Skip, am I pronouncing your surname correctly? Because it is an unusual one. It is. You are right. And you got it perfectly. Way to go. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, uh, You're senior pastor of Calvary Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We've been talking about that already. But uh, you've also managed to get a book out during uh, this lockdown pandemic season, Biography of God. I, I guess this was a Uh, in the works though for a little while was it it was in the works it takes me about a year to get through a project like that and so i i had done some work on it but you're right it it afforded me some time to really edit there you go um it's it's a bold title biography of god what what inspired that particular title it's a funny title Um, a friend of mine who was the pastor of the uh, moody bible church named erwin lutzer uh said to me tongue in cheek he said well it's about time somebody got around to writing god's biography after all this year so yeah i i wanted to write a book that was about god you know i was influenced by a book years ago named um uh, called knowing god by j.i packer and i i had the opportunity to sit and have breakfast with him years later but that book so impacted me but not the way i thought it would I thought it was a book about knowing God. I found out it was a theology book, and and but craftily done and well done in a in a personable way. But I it, it impacted me, and I wanted to write a book, but I wanted to write it to the skeptic first, and then the seeker second, and then the saint third. I had those three people in mind, and I kind of wanted the opportunity to move them from their position and move them further down the road if they were willing to do that. So I, I began with my own experience of being young and wondering about God and, and, and just the questions everybody has. And uh, that's why the, the front part of the book is sort of front loaded with a, a lot of ideas about uh, showing and proving the existence of God. But I, I really, I, I believe God is knowable and I believe that God, wants intimacy and a a level of friendship jesus calls us friends it's not the kitschy sort of friendship that that you know one might imagine it's a very different kind of relationship Mm -hmm. it has to be if you're dealing with an invisible being it's hard to have a personal relationship with somebody you can't see so it's going to be different but it is personal nonetheless and i want to describe what that is like and what kind of a response god would demand 
I mean, my my interest was peaked in the book naturally because I I run a, a show, a weekly show on Premier Christian Radio, Unbelievable, which regularly brings skeptics and Christians together in, into dialogue. Now, um, in your ministry, have have you found that you know you needed a book like this to help people who are skeptical? I suppose, and and because in a way, you know, you said you you came from a background where well, you were willing to try anything, and it doesn't sound like you disbelieved in God. You just weren't sure who God yeah. was right. uh, or do you, or do you tend to find actually people are actually these days more kind of, no, I, I just don't believe in God full stop has, has that kind of quite, you know, full on skepticism come to. I dominate? think, it's, I think they, I think, I think there's a journey people take. My journey was um, I grew up believing in God. Um, it was the traditional Christian God in a very high church sense. And then I moved away because of my experience from God because, you know, he became irrelevant, really, in my mm. life. And, and then I moved back to God, but a very different kind. It was, um, I moved back to the biblical God. And it was, there was an authenticity that I lacked before. So um, I find that people are more agnostic. My brother went to a seminary even, and now he's a complete agnostic. But I think agnosticism is sort of a stop that people make on the road because it's easy. It's not really well thought through. They just stopped caring or thinking. And when, when you know, if, if they keep thinking and keep caring, they're either going to become atheistic or they're going to become believers. Uh, but it's just easy and convenient to stop and go, I don't know. I'm agnostic. You know? So it's just that people stop caring and then stop devoting mental energy toward the process. I suppose, I suppose there's a kind of a point at which people may think, well, does it make sense? Does I, do I need to devote myself to thinking about this? I, I can imagine a lot of people just continue their lives kind of where you were, where God is irrelevant to them. No, they don't really have any particular reason to even think about God. I, I mean, w- would that we lived in a world where everyone was desperate to know whether God existed or not, but sadly that's, that's not the case, is it? So how, how do you even begin, I suppose, to get people interested in the question to start with? Cause I think that is where a lot of people begin just kind of apathy almost. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I remember reading uh, something by Mortimer J. Adler. Uh, Adler was um, the editor-in-chief of Encyclopedia Britannica and the 54-volume of the great books of the Western world. And he was asked, and he brought this up, I forget which book it was, but he was asked why the article on God was so voluminous. And he, and, and he allowed so much, so many words to be given to that article. And he said, because there are more consequences that follow from this one issue than any other issue. And that, that made an impact on me that, that everybody has ideas about what comes after you die and is there a God or why are we here? But I love what Packer said. J.I. Packer said that, that to ignore the study of God is to sentence yourself to stumbling around blindfold in, in this world with no direction. And, you know, he likens it to taking an Amazonian tribesman to New York City without explaining the context of how people built cities, how infrastructure works, how buildings and transportation works. And if you don't give him an explanation, but he has to survive in that, that's a very cruel move. And so um, I just thought, you know, everybody, everybody I've met deals with this issue. It's a universal topic. 
It's in films, it's in songs, it's in conversations. So I'm just going to throw the gauntlet down, call it biography of God and start with my personal experience as a young kid and then move into the arguments for his existence. Mm-hmm. And you do cover those arguments. Obviously um, you're, you're, you're dealing with them in, in fairly brief form, but um, you, you cover an awful lot of ground in this book in, in that way. Um, you know, you're, you're covering some of the classic arguments from God, uh, the, the moral argument, um, scientific sort of, ex, you know, evidence, right, right, uh, right, right. arguments from experience. I, I suppose for the skeptic, that might be important ground to cover. Um, they do say, though, don't they? You know, ultimately, no one's argued into believing in God. I mean, how, how far can the arguments themselves take us, do you think? I think that nobody will give you proof, but you can find plenty of evidence. And just like in a court of law, evidence is everything. Uh, Once you have enough evidence, even if it's circumstantial evidence, even if it's anecdotal evidence, if you get enough evidence in your corner, you make a strong case. And so uh, I think the evidence, and for me, you know, I came to biblical faith. I didn't even finish my story, but I came to biblical faith. But then once I made a real commitment to Jesus, what happened is I went to college and I was assaulted by my professors. And one of them even plainly said, I, I even have it in the book, look, my, one of my jobs this semester is to get you to not believe what you believe, because it's stupid, it's naive, it's outdated. And so I, I felt like he was, I was outnumbered. Wow. And, uh, and he was the uh, protagonist. So, so all that did is cause me to really seek for answers to unbelievers. And so I existed in a world every day of antagonism and unbelievers giving me arguments. And either I, you know, I was going to, I was, it was, I was going to sink or swim. Mm. So I decided to read a book written by somebody who became a dear friend of mine over the years, a Josh McDowell called evidence that demands a verdict. And I memorized sections of it. <laughs> and I went back to work and I had deep, wonderful conversations with unbelievers and had the opportunity to lead many of them to Christ. So, so that was such an impact on my life that I decided uh, that I would write a book, Biography of God, not just for the skeptic, but this is for the believer who has to deal with relatives and coworkers and neighbors who don't believe. This gives them, I think, um, cookies on the bottom shelf, uh, um, um, readiness and, and um, uh, uh, I'm messing up the words here, but it gives them equipment. It equips them to be able to reach them and gives them answers that they need. So if they start reading to the book, I don't need this. I already believe in God. No, keep reading. You do need this. Mm. Mm. Unless you can articulate it clearly, um, keep reading. Yeah. You mentioned Josh McDowell, um, and uh, I'm I'm friends with his son, Sean, uh, who's a wonderful apologist as well, um, and, and reaching so many people now on YouTube and elsewhere um of course w- once you deal with the, the the sort of some of those classic arguments for god you move into the question of well well what is this god like what is the nature of this god um i guess a lot of people come with a preconception of of who god is especially if they are coming from you know a background where maybe they've picked up some cultural perspectives you know maybe the simpsons was their best guide to what god was like or Maybe it was a particular church background, but that didn't really paint a very authentic picture of God. So what are some of the kind of 
stumbling blocks that have to, I suppose, be removed as we try to get a, a better picture of who God is? Um, I guess for me, one of the big stumbling blocks was God's austerity and aloofness. Um, God was presented, you know, in my background as somebody untouchable that you have to go through another human being and go through their system in order to touch God. So, so God was just, it just seemed like God made the universe and was put off by us all and decided I'm going to leave and let others handle it for me. You know, I'll let these priests do it. You know, they, they'll do a better job than me. So, you know, I, that, that, that formed in my mind, that was a, for me, a pretty big stumbling block. I did not really do well with the idea. I, I was interested in the idea, but it, it just didn't seem like it really was um, the fact that God was a personal God, he, you know, because of the way he had been presented to me. The idea that he was personal, that he wanted a friendship with me. Um, I, I, why? I mean, I, you know, somebody said to me, God loves you. And I remember telling him, I said, why? Why does God love me? What is it? What is it that he sees? Help me understand that. Um, it just didn't make much sense to me um, because of the way I think that. So for me, the big stumbling block was, was the distance of God, mm. you know, which isn't, listen, I think everybody, uh, Isaiah dealt with that. Isaiah said, verily, you are a God who hides himself. You know, God isn't always apparent in, in our, in our universe. You don't look around and in a tragedy go, Oh, God's here. Now, those of us who are theologically tethered understand that. But if you're not, um, it can be quite disconcerting. Mm. How, 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 in your experience, do people break through then from that sense of God being far off, which I think is actually the way a lot of people, for whatever reason, conceive God um, as being distant or being a, a sort of possibly a version of their own parent. And if it wasn't a great example of a parent, then, then that may obviously give them a sense that God is some sort of tyrant or even a, you know, just a school teacher who is looking out for any time they do anything bad. How, how have you tried to help people in the book? And I suppose personally get a better picture of God and, and actually connect with God in a more personal way. I guess it depends on the person, but I think we, we need to draw the distinction between imagination and revelation. As soon as a person says, well, you know, I've always pictured God as fill in the blank, that's pure imagination. They're coming up with their own ideas in their own mind of what they suppose God would be like. So they're creating God in their image. When you get to know somebody, you don't get to say, you see that mailman over there, or you see that police officer over there? I picture that officer as this, this, and that. You have to actually meet the officer, the person, and allow the self-disclosure, the revelation of that person, of himself or herself to you, to be the determining factor. So um, when I talk to a person, you have to have at least part of the conversation dealing with the trustworthiness and the veracity of scripture, because we don't get it from imagination. We get all the ideas about God from revelation. Well, how do you know that revelation is trustworthy? In fact, one, one uh, atheist told me, okay, so you're telling me God is personal. He made the world. And then he left us a letter. We got to read the letter. That's how he's communicating to us. It was a fair question. And I, mm -hmm. I, 
address it in the book, that whole conversation of why would God give us a letter to reveal himself? So at some point, you have to have a conversation about how do we know the Bible is trustworthy? And, and that was a lot of my early conversations with unbelievers uh, in my professors, uh, doctors, brilliant surgeons in my early days of my Christian walk is to get them. And then at some point, it's funny, you get these really erudite, um, brilliant, logical thinkers, uh, medical scientists coming to an emotional level. Uh, once w- once you, you start talking about this and the evidence piles up, they get sometimes very emotional, like, you know, breaking down and crying, like, I know I need this. You know, it's like, wow, what just happened? It's almost mm. like the little child inside is saying, I've, I've known I've needed God all along, and now I'm willing to let go. Mm. But they have to be brought to that point. And, you know, I, I've discovered that when I share the gospel with an unbeliever, every person is different. And I just sort of have to let them disclose to me who they are before I know what kind of an approach I'm going to have in the conversation. Sure. I mean, again, you cover a lot more ground and much more than we've time for in our discussion today. Um, the problem of evil and suffering, um, but also, um, you know, a, a, re- a really difficult uh, theological question, that the fact that we believe God is three in one, a trinity in uh, in Christian orthodoxy. Now, how, 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 when that comes up uh, and in the book, have you tried to explain that? Obviously many people have attempted to give different analogies. Um, what, what, what do you find is a helpful way of, of thinking through that particular issue? God as father, son, and Holy spirit. Um, I have never met a person who has a grip on the Trinity. So I never approach an explanation with some, level of high confidence that I'm going to be the first person in history who's going to unlock this unfathomable thing. So, so I tell people, look, here's how the Bible describes God. And this is out now. It's like, yeah, I don't get that. I said, okay, I understand that. And then some of those little examples, whether it's ice and fire or, you know, people use water and vapor and all eggs and everything else. All of those are helpful to a degree, but they're only starting points. Um, um, who can understand the mind of the Lord? You know, there, there's this level uh, of, of somebody explaining to you your environment, but then taking you to the edge of the cliff and you realize it's a chasm. It's, there's no way. It's un, I can't grasp all that. Uh, you've explained a little bit to me, and I've seen a little bit, but that means there's much more. So when it comes to dealing with God and dealing with the Trinity, you can apprehend certain facts that are good enough for you to go, okay, I can live with the rest of the unknown. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that's how I kind of deal with the Trinity is that you're going to have to be content to realizing that you're dealing with a being who, who you won't be able to wrap your mental arms around totally. Uh, if you could, he really wouldn't be God. He would just be, I mean, you could make him. That's like an idol. You could make that. Um, so that to me, that's one of the wonders of this being called God, mm. is that he is in some sense yeah. unfathomable. I, I mean, on, on that front, you know, it may, may I'm sure a lot of people 
uh, and I don't know what the the sort of religious makeup is in in your your part of the, the states, but we'll meet people from other <clears throat> sects or cults who don't share that view of God as Trinitarian. Um, and and I think it can be quite difficult for the average Christian to explain why this is essential, why this particular way of seeing God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, and that Jesus isn't just a an exalted being, uh, but ultimately a created being, as as you might find in um, the Mormon view or uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and so on. Um, why why for you? I suppose two questions here. Why for you is it important to get that? biography of god correct in that way um and secondly does it matter if a person doesn't have god correctly in their head does does that put into question their relationship with god ultimately if they don't have the right picture of who who god is in that kind of trinitarian way yeah good question i do believe that people die all the time without an adequate understanding and knowledge of god um one of the great things of the gospel is, is you believe that Jesus took your place on a cross, that his sacrifice was sufficient, and you can't add or take anything away from it. So that's, that's a gospel of grace. You, it's a simple act of believing in Jesus, trusting him. That doesn't mean you, you, um, you can uh, filter through all the theological ramifications of the nature and work of Christ or the Holy Spirit. You, it's just faith that brings you into the kingdom. Yeah, we're not saved by our good theology, thank goodness. Or... Yes, that's right. So, <laughs> so um, uh, having said that, we, we're called to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Second Peter 3.18. So uh, part of that growth, and if you're going to understand the God that you have a relationship with, you have to understand that the Bible presents him, presents Jesus in a certain way as deity, and the Holy Spirit as a personality who's also deity. And, you know, and, and, and you have to deal with, not only just deal with that, you have to understand why that is, is so important to you. If, if there is a third person of the Trinity named the Holy Spirit, and Jesus promised that he's going to be living in you, man, that, that changes everything for me, because now I can get through life. It's not like God gives me a roadmap. It's like, here's, here's a Bible, read the letter, and you'll be fine. No, I'll tell you what. Um, put it this way. When I go into a large city like London pre pandemic and it's crazy and I'm trying to, I have a rental car and I have a map and I'm trying to figure out how to get there and I'm reading the map. You know, if somebody comes along who's a local and says, tell you what, mate, I'll hop in the car and I'll show you where to go. Well, that's a game changer. So, um, the Holy spirit, hops in the car, lives in me, and shows me where to go. It's far different than just having the map. Mm. And, and to understand that there's a being who can do that, and first of all, a being like that has to be God, and, and what that means in communication with Jesus and the Father um, can be quite powerful in how I navigate my life. It's very practical. It's not just stuff that I need to memorize and know for a catechism class. This is very practical stuff. It gets me from point A to point B without stress. Mm. I, I've got to say, your Billy Graham accent is a bit better than your British uh, one, though, there, Skip, uh, if, well, if that was I your local. I didn't do my British accent. Oh, yet. come on then. Give us your British one. 
All right, so listen, if I was John Lennon, which is Liverpoolian, you know, he'd be sort of <laughs> like this, you know, and, and then talking, you know. So that's, I grew up with the Beatles, so that's the only British That's accent. good, that's good. No, you, you would have fooled me. Um, no, <laughs> look, it's, it's been a lot of fun actually talking through both, both your life and obviously some of these theological issues in the book. Um, obviously, you land ultimately in, in the person of Jesus where, where it all comes together. Um, uh, it's 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 a fascinating way of approaching the topic thank you for the book biography of god by skip heitzig uh, it's published by harvest house publishers i'll make sure there's a link from today's podcast if you're listening via podcast um but uh, time time has kind of run out already so um thank you very much for for giving me the time uh skip to to, to look through this um as as things do start to get back to normal we've got vaccines on the horizon and things like that what um what what are your hopes for what the coming year or two may bring? Uh, what 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 are you looking forward to as we start to hopefully emerge from this pandemic? Well, I'm looking forward to hugging people and <laughs> giving them handshakes and, and getting close and looking them in the eye without a mask and telling them um, that that they're here for a very significant reason. And to be able to give people that kind of encouragement, you know, it's I hate the term social distancing. I hate it. And um, um, we are doing everything we were not meant to do as human beings. And so the quicker this gets over, the better. And, and I tell you what, if, if there's anything that has helped the church, it has helped us evaluate how we deal with other people. Because once this is over, there's nobody in the world that should be better at conveying the personal touch in a personal community than the church of Jesus Christ. So I hope... This helps us evaluate so that when we come back together as the church, we just don't do business as usual, but we do his business uh, and, it's, and it's done in an unusual and, and in a way that is very attractive to the world. Hmm. Well, every blessing for you and the church uh, and indeed the book as uh, you go into 2021, Skip. It's been great catching up with you. Um, where can people find out more about you, by the way, if they want to find out either about your own ministry or, or the church as well? Well, they could go to skipheitzig.com. That is a, a website that we have developed, as well as Calvary Church or calvarynm.church mm-hmm. is the website. And uh, we can get you resources. One of the great things I love is that all of our resources in terms of Bible study and discipleship are there for free. So we love to put them into people's hands. Great, great. Well, it's been it's been great pleasure spending an hour or so chatting with you. Um, you can get on with the rest of your day. Uh, I, uh, it's uh, a lot earlier where you are <laughs> as we speak than, than it is where I am. But um, great to great to get to know you a bit, Skip. And thanks for being with me on the profile today. Thank you. God bless you, Justin. And thank you for listening. Uh, you can find the profile every Saturday evening here on Premier Christian Radio from 8 p.m. And also over at our podcast where you can listen back to today's show and find many more interviews. That's at premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. Uh, if you would like a free sample copy of Premier Christianity magazine, don't forget you can head over to their website as well. Premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. And we'll see you next week.